and the king of Teen Pop Canada, Justin Bieber. All right, you guys, how we doing? Good, good, good to see you guys. It isn't, isn't it been like, it's been, it's been hot out there, hasn't it? Um, man, good night. Went to the Corn Fest. Did you guys go to the, anybody go to the Corn Fest? Yeah, a number of you went to the Corn Fest. I think I, what was that? Is that Kyle? Kyle, did you get, did you get a corn dog? Footlong corn dog, man, look at that. Well, hey, it's really, it's good to talk about footlong corn dogs with you here. Um, it's good to be here with you again this morning. Uh, welcome to Sunday morning with Cornerstone Church. Um, man, if you're new here or this is your first couple of times uh, with us, it's just awesome to have you. We're just really excited to have you here. Um, we hope that this is going to be a time for you to kind of take a break from the noise out there and to calm the noise in here and sit in God's presence as we really pursue knowing him. Um, a couple of things that I, I do want to mention up front, uh, this year's fall retreat is really going to be the best fall retreat ever. It will be better than the 2019 best fall retreat ever. The best fall retreat ever, 2021, will feature, and this is a money-back guarantee for you guys. It's going to feature, oh man, I'm so excited, I'm so excited for this, Natalie Flynn drinking Diet Coke. Yeah. Man, I guarantee it, guarantee it. Uh, some of you don't know Natalie very well or at all, so uh, let's take a look back to a stunning interview I did with Natalie in a classic episode of the critically acclaimed show, Six Feet Apart, roll film. Do you know I'm scared of tape measures? Welcome to Six Feet Apart, an interview show that informs. You like it?
That's all the time we have for today. Thanks for joining us. All right, that's Natalie. All right. Now, do you have your Diet Coke here this morning? You bet it. You bet you do. All right, you bet you do. All right, so if you have the scriptures this morning, uh, we're going to be keying in on Romans chapter 8. Um, as we look at the question, what does it mean to be a citizen in the kingdom of God? What does it mean to be a, a citizen in the kingdom of God? So find that place. And as we look back at kind of last week, if you weren't here with us, kind of a brief introduction to the idea of the kingdom of God. You see, whenever the scriptures talk about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, they're not so much talking about a what, but a who. And in order to understand the kingdom of God, you have to understand the king. So whenever we talk about kingdom of God, essentially we are saying that, that God reigns. But God's reign is seen most particularly, it is inaugurated, it begins in the person of Jesus Christ. And through Jesus, we get a picture of what God is like, what he is doing, what his mission and goal is. We talked about uh, Luke 4 and how Jesus took the scroll of Isaiah and he read from it. That God's mission is to preach good news to the poor, to bring freedom to the oppressed, to open the eyes of the blind and to declare the year of the Lord's favor. So when we talk about God's kingdom reign, we're talking about how Jesus is at work to make all things new. That God intends to take everything that has been corrupted by sin, every relationship, every body, and I mean every, every body, and every person who declares Jesus to be the king, every square inch of this world that has been tainted, he intends to transform it, to redeem it, to change it. That means that kingdom values are at work when kingdom citizens bring themselves to push back against corruption in government. When the king reigns, we are his vice regents on earth, his ambassadors working for conservation efforts or equity in the education system or fresh produce in food deserts. Kingdom citizens are also work very hard at relationships. We care for one another. We don't cancel one another, but we work towards unity. We work on our marriages. We do the hard work to grow as children of the most high king, and we adopt a heart of understanding that authentic love doesn't play it safe. It's not self-protective. Instead, authentic love is risk-taking love. And the shocking thing, the unexpected thing about the kingdom of God is how it is established. It's not established through power or domination or aggression or war. It's established rather through sacrifice. The kingdom of God is the exact opposite of the kingdom of the world. It's completely upside down. It's inaugurated through grace and mercy. The king has come to bring peace through a cross. So this begs the question, have I made peace with this king? So we're going to look at Romans 8 to help us answer this question. Before we open the scriptures, I just invite you to pray with me or listen along as I pray. Father in heaven, God, we come before you, Lord, and we, we ask that you would speak to us. Lord, would your word be food for us this morning? God, would the, 
Would our hearts draw near to you as you have a word of hope and encouragement for each one of us. I know that you are here and you long to do good. Speak, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, Jesus tells us one story about what the kingdom of God is like. In Matthew 25, he says this, When the Son of Man comes in all his glory and all the angels with him, he'll sit on his glorious throne, and before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. You know, when I read this, the question jumps off the page. What side am I on? You know, which side am I going to be on? During the presidential inauguration, y'all saw that, that, that picture of Bernie, you know, that went around, right? You guys know what I'm talking about, right? And then all of a sudden on the interwebs was all this, like, fine Bernie, like, hey, look at this picture, and then you kind of go look at it, and you're like, oh my gosh, that's so, somebody, you know, photoshopped Bernie in that. And so the internet was just flooded with that. It was like a Where's Waldo thing. Well, if Jesus' story of, the king, of this king who's going to separate the sheep and the goats, if that was a still shot, the first thing that I would do is I want to know if all the nations, if everybody was there, I would want to know which side I'm on. I'd zoom in on every single face. Am I on the right or am I on the left? Am, am I a citizen of God's kingdom? Is my life under the rule and protection of the king? If you've never, if you've never wondered this, I want to make this urgent for you. This is urgent. There are two crucial questions here. First, this is about life or death. The reason why this is urgent is because this is about the life or death of, of your soul. This is everything. Scripture is very black and white here. There is no sort of, kind of, a citizen. Jesus tells Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he, he, he says, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. There are not varying degrees of citizenship. So for storytelling purposes, to illustrate truth, there are sheep and there are goats. So being a citizen in God's kingdom, is, it's not like rating your top foods. I, I made eggplant this past week, and, and my daughter Natalie informed, not this Natalie, a different Natalie, my daughter Natalie, she's somewhere, informed me that it's not, it's not her favorite. She's okay with it, but she only sort of likes it. There's no sort of being a child. There's no kind of a citizen in God's kingdom. It's either Diet Coke or it's not Diet Coke. Right, Natalie? Okay. Are there any other Natalies here? Do I need a... Okay. I would expect, I would expect very strange looks from, from all of you, probably my wife, you know, more, more than you. If I introduced her to people saying, I'd like you to meet my sort of wife, Michelle, or this is Michelle, we're kind of married. Either you are a citizen of the kingdom of God or you are not, so everything is at stake here. Another reason why it's important to make this urgent is, second, unless you ask this question, am I a citizen of God's kingdom, there's a great chance that you will probably completely miss the most important thing for you to experience, which is God's desire and design for a relationship with you that is real and personal. And this is like the bonkers thing to take in, that God 
in heaven wants a relationship with me. It makes sense in our earthly relationships because we're just, we're so, listen, we are so desperate for love and affection. We want authentic relationships. We don't want to know that we'd have a, hang out with a bunch of fake friends. We want to be real people and we want people to love us. We want relationships that are not merely transactional. We want friendships where we demonstrate love for each other and not owe anything in return for it. See, because authentic love is never bought. It's only received. And God's love for you is demonstrative love. He demonstrates His love. It's not merely transactional love. So with that, let's open up the book scriptures here to the book of Romans chapter 8. We're going to look primarily specifically at this question, what makes anyone a citizen of the kingdom of God? And so in this passage, we're going to see four things. We're going to see first the shortcomings of the law. Next, we're going to see the captivity of the law. We're going to then see the collapse of the law. And finally, the stunning definition of kingdom citizenship. We're going to see how the law fails us, how the law enslaves us, how it is deficient to bring life, and how God redefines a relationship with us. So Romans 8. I'm going to read this slowly because I want you to hear the things that are at work here. Paul begins in verse 1. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give you life in your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of a of adoption as sons and daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father. 
verse 1 and 2. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation. How much condemnation? None. For everyone? No. For those who are in Christ Jesus. God does not condemn us for our sins if we are in Christ. Well, how does that happen? Like, how do I get to be in Christ? If there's no condemnation, that's what I want. Like, how do we do it? Well, it's the spirit of life in Christ Jesus that has set me free. Well, free from what? This is the law of sin and death. Now here, this is where we see the shortcomings of the law. Verse 3, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. There are two kinds of people in the world. There are those in the flesh and then those who are in Christ. Verse 3 here is, is just simply amazing for several reasons. One, it explains to us that God condemned sin in the flesh. He did it by sending his son Jesus in the flesh for what? Sin. But the law is powerless to do this. The, the law is good. It is amazing. But living by the law won't change anything. Well, what law is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the law of Moses. God's holy requirement, which is on display. What I mean by this is that the law was given so that you and I would not think, I can do that. Like, I got this. I can live up to your standards, God. But rather, we have the law so that we would look at it and go, that's impossible. I could never do that. The purpose of the law of Moses was for us to agree that we actually don't measure up to God's perfect standard. So the law isn't bad. It's meant to convict us of our failure and, 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 and push us to try to you know, understand that we can't live up to God's holiness. The good news in verse 3 is that sin is condemnable, but that it was condemned in Christ. Why? Why did Jesus condemn? Why did he punish sin? Or why did God punish sin in Christ? For what reason? Verse 4, in order so that for the law's requirements of perfect law-keeping would be fulfilled in us, us who don't keep the law are not perfect, but who instead walk by the Spirit of God. Remember, in, in Christ, on the cross, Jesus took the condemnation of the law because the consequence for breaking God's law is death. I hope this is not hard to understand. Jesus was the perfect law keeper. He was put to death, not for his sin, but for mine and for yours, in order for God to be just. Jesus, who broke no law, he served the required sentence of death in order to free me from the penalty of my sin. And so Paul says that Christ, as my substitute, he now sets me free from the condemnation of the law. That's why he can say that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ because God condemned my sin in the death of Jesus. 
And so we see here what he's saying is that the law has shortcomings. It cannot lead you to God. Why? Because the law was never meant to bring life. But rather it was meant to provoke my awareness that I'm in need of forgiveness. Why does that matter? This matters because so many of us try to use the law or some form of it to, to find life. They'll think like, well, I mean, I haven't, I haven't killed anybody. God must accept me. I recycle. <laughs> I help people. So we put our hope in our works. We, we hang eternity on our supposed decency. In essence, I'm a, I'm a pretty decent person. And this might be true on many accounts. Man, decent people are sitting in this auditorium. Decent people live all over the globe. But decent compared to what? Compared to perfection, compared to the law, we fall hopelessly short. But do you see what we've done? We've tried to make our supposed good law-keeping deserving of God's grace. Galatians 2.21 says this, Paul says this, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness, that is right standing in God, were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If this is you, I I think this this is what has happened. In your supposed goodness, you actually put God in your debt. God works for you. He must submit to you. You have given him something. You are a decent person, and now he owes you. But the reality is, is God owes us nothing. Reason reason with me here. Even when I think I'm acting like a good boy, what do I want from God? I want him to accept me. I want him to forgive me. Doing good does not make anyone a Christian. It doesn't grant you acceptance. It doesn't grant you forgiveness. And so many people have said it like this. If Christianity is true, then it's not fair that Christians can be accepted and forgiven when other people, when people of other religions who live exemplary lives are not. And I get what they're trying to say. I get it. But what's happened here in this sentence is that What they've done is they've mixed the language of grace, forgiveness, with the language of merit, living a good life. See, people who who are good, they deserve forgiveness. But forgiven for what, though? If the law's been broken, you've already shown that you can't keep the law. You actually don't live an exemplary life compared to Jesus. So we can't mix the language. The language of grace is is forgiveness. You're in need of forgiveness. You can't merit it. You can't earn it. And so Jesus died because the law was never meant to bring forgiveness. It was meant to bring me and you to our senses that I need it. I need God to step in. I cannot earn his love. So the shortcomings of the law is that doing good will never make you good. It will never make you good. 
But not only does the law fall short of making us good, it actually keeps us in captivity if we try to live from it. Verse 5 says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Well, the shortcut way of talking about the flesh is this, self-righteousness. Anyone who is trying to do good, trying to be good enough for God through, I don't know, like going to church or trying to do good or giving to the poor, what they're doing is they're bringing all their self-effort in order to say, look what I did, Jesus. You owe me now. What's my payback? This is what the flesh does with the law. It's self-righteousness. But look, what does the flesh want? The flesh doesn't want Jesus. The flesh does not want a crucified Lord. And the flesh, it's just so sneaky. It's so sneaky. It looks good on the outside. But listen, it doesn't want to obey God's holy truth. The flesh is opposed to God and the things of God. The flesh doesn't submit to God. The flesh wants what the flesh wants. And it's so sneaky. Paul's saying that even so-called good people, he's, listen, he's talking about the, the decent folks. <laughs> he's not talking about murderers and people who practice witchcraft here. He's talking about anybody who's trying to live a good life, but do that on their own, apart from God, who say, God, Jesus, I don't need you, but I can be good enough for you on my own. They are actually in captivity by the condemnation that the law brings. In trying to please God that way, they actually don't. In fact, they can't. This is the height of the self-deception of sin. Sin says, the flesh says, live however you want. Whatever feels right or good, do that. Or, or if I do these things, I must be good. And what the flesh does is it offers you a freedom that is not actual. But in fact, it's the very sense of feeling like you're free, although you're not, that enslaves you. It's, it's a masquerade. And so the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. The flesh doesn't need Jesus. He, it doesn't want him as Lord of their life. The flesh keeps a very clear distance from the cross. The flesh may say it wants to please God, all the while not wanting to ever have him as king. And I've seen so many people caught in this cycle, and it's living in captivity, not freedom. And so if you're open enough here this morning from hearing from the Lord, and you recognize, man, this, might, this is me. <laughs> I was once like you. Man, this, I'm talking about me. This is my history. I was the good kid in my family. The law brought captivity, not freedom for me. 
shortcomings of the law, the captivity of the law, and ultimately we see the collapse of the law. The utter failure for the law to do what? To do what? Verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ, this is a key word, it's a key phrase right here, does not belong to him. The law fails you, fails to bring you into a place of belonging to Jesus. Your, your, never, your goodness will never bring you to a place. My goodness will never, never brought me to a place of no condemnation. The issue is not what you do, but whose you are. And the law collapses completely. Although the law is good, it collapses completely because it cannot give you the spirit of Christ. There's no amount of law keeping that will... God will put his spirit in you. Because the law is powerless to bring you into union with Jesus. And union with Jesus Christ is everything. Living a good life, simply being religious, is powerless to make you a citizen of the kingdom of God that the king would say to those on his right, come, be with me. So what makes anyone a citizen of God's kingdom? How do you get into being in, in Christ so that there is no condemnation? How are you born again like Jesus told Nicodemus? He must be born again. If not by the law, if the law fails us, if our goodness fails us, then what is the stun stunning definition of kingdom citizen citizenship? Beginning in verse 12, so then, because of this, Brothers and sisters, we're not debtors. We are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live in according to the flesh, your self-righteousness, your goodness, you're going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons and daughters of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Do you see what Paul's done? Family and fatherhood carries the conversation. The defining story of God's work in your life is adoption. Romans 8.3 again says this, For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering, and so he condemned sin in the flesh. In my life, in Paul's life, in many of your lives, the cross must take center stage. Because Jesus was crucified, he was he was killed, his body died so that the righteous requirement of the law, death, would be satisfied in him for you. Jesus meets the righteous requirement of the law for you. The wages of sin is death. God is just. Someone or something has to die. And Jesus was put to death in the flesh in order to bring you to God. And this isn't merely transactional. It, 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 isn't, it isn't systematic theology, although I nerd out on systematic theology. At the heart of the cross is 
a pounding heart of love that God desires for you to have him as his father. It's not the enemy. And the word Paul uses here is adoption. Adoption. What is adoption? Well, it's, it's taking somebody in who's not a part of your family and then bestowing on them all the privileges of family. Like through, through adoption, we become, we become heirs of God. Like what, is God. like what does God own? Everything. You mean I get everything? Everything that God wants to give me, I, that he has, I, I'm going to get that? I'm going to inherit the kingdom? I'm going to be a co-heir with Jesus? You mean everything that he gets, I get? And adoption is this way to say that God brings you from darkness to light, from death to life, from condemned to no condemnation. Because in adoption, God, listen, listen, he unites you with Jesus in Christ. Your life then is hidden in him, hidden in all of Jesus' obedience. Your life is completely hidden in him. His perfect law-keeping then becomes yours. And his death for your sin. Well, this begs the question, well, how am I adopted? Like, how does this happen? Like, what's the process? Is there paperwork or something that I need to fill out? Well, Jesus answers the question this way in John 3.36. He says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Condemnation remains on him. And you see that word, believe, it often throws us, doesn't it? Because Jesus here is not talking about an intellectual agreement, an intellectual belief. Right? In James 2, it says, even the demons believe in God and they shudder. So it's not just like I, I intellectually I understand about what the cross is and I understand what you're saying. He's talking about an honest response that sees our flesh and turns away from it to Jesus. We turn away from trusting in ourselves and our goodness and our self-righteousness and we allow the law to be what it is to show us that we're not perfect but we really receive a, a savior, a God who's righteous for me. It's trusting in his work and his goodness and it's only an honest trust, an honest turning that Jesus takes our condemnation. It's only an honest, submitted heart to him that opens up your heart and your life to being in a position of receiving. And that moment, that turning, that peace, that reliance, that heartfelt trust is what unites us in a relationship with Christ. Trusting in Christ alone for your goodness is the way that you enter into the kingdom of God. And when that happens everything changes. God adopts you as his child. You become his. Nobody's born into it. No one has always, I've always, I've, I've always been a Christian. Nobody has always ever been a Christian. Becoming a child of God is a heartfelt decision to claim him as Christ and his work on the cross for you. And so becoming a Christian, I was 19 when I turned from my self-righteousness and 
sin, self-righteousness is sin, and I turned from that to a Savior who saves me from my sin. I was 19 years old when I did that. Did that, And that happens anytime somebody turns from him. It can happen when you're 9, when you're 19, or when you're 90. But what happens, the defining moment, what God wants us to see is that he brings you into union with Jesus through adoption. Everything that is his is now yours. Let me illustrate it this way. I have three kids. They are, they are my children. They belong to me. Is there anything that any of them could do that would no longer make them my kids? No. They're my kids. If one of my kids came to me and said, I'm not worthy of being your kid. I can never live up to what you want. Don't call me your son. Don't call me your daughter. Would they cease to be my child because they don't feel worthy? No. You see, because being a son or daughter is not about worthiness. Conversely, Dan, is there anything that you can do for me that would somehow make you my child? This is not a trick question. Is there anything that you can do that's suddenly you're my kid? No. Juggling won't do it, right? What if you acted like my kid? What if you're like, hey, pops, you found out I like to fish, so you go buy a pole, you show up at my house for dinner, we watch a show, we play games together, and you even call me dad. Are you my child? Nope. So being around the church, reading the scriptures, acting as if you're a part of the family of God, none of that matters if you haven't been brought into the kingdom through adoption. If you haven't trusted Christ, if you haven't been adopted, if you haven't turned to the king, you're on the outside. But if we are united with him, if we're united with Christ through turning from self and trusting in Jesus Christ, he brings you into the kingdom. And this, oh, oh, friends, listen, it will never be undone. God will never turn away from you. You cannot undo his adoption. And if you're here today and you've, you've done that and you've trusted in Christ, but you feel like I'm failing, I have a good word for you. I want to encourage you to rest in this. God has brought you into union with himself. He has adopted you as his child and your life depends on his promises, not your faithfulness. It depends on God's precious promises to you, not your failure. But often what we do is we go, I just need to try harder. I need to do better. And all of a sudden, we put ourselves under a law that fails us every time. Where God is saying, look at me. <laughs> Come to me, all who are weary and burdened. Receive me. I'll give you rest. 
some of us, though, we stand and we look at the cross and we think, I can never be good enough. I, I can never measure up. We already know that. We're not trying to be good. <laughs> and we're not going to church to kind of put on a show. We just, we know we're not good enough. Some of you might say, you don't even know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. You don't even know what's been done to me. God could never accept someone like me. But this is what the cross is all about. God willingly took all the things on that you think keep him from loving you. Even while you hated him and wanted nothing to do with him, Christ died for you in order to adopt you. Emily read this morning 1 John 3, 1 years ago. This is, for, this is a history lesson. Years ago, I had uh, torn my ACL and I was up here teaching. <clears throat> I wrote the teaching not on uh, drugs, uh, but I was drugged up here teaching. This is a confession. I knew what I was going to say. You guys, are, some of you remember this, and I had my foot up like this. I said, if there's ever one tattoo that you ever get on your body, man, consider 1 John 3, 1. One of you said that kind of took a picture of this and then wrote 1 John 3, 1 on my foot, like I got a tattoo on my foot. So 1 John 3, 1 says this. See what great love the Father has lavished on you you see it? Do you see what great love the Father has lavished on you, smothered you? Have you ever, have you ever had a lavish helping of like, I don't know, ice cream? You ever have like, you go to that, you go to get ice cream and it's just, it's one scoop and you're like, five bucks. But what if, what if somebody kind of goes, you think you're getting the one scoop, and they come out and they bring like this bowl, and they just start scooping it on there. And your eyes, you know, I don't know what fav favorite ice cream is, mint chocolate chip, but not the green kind, the white kind. And God just puts, you know, the person who's, not God, but that'd be weird if God were serving you ice cream, but he wants to, but the person just is scooping ice, like just tons of ice cream. And you're like, Oh my gosh. And you can invite all your friends, like, look at this bowl. I asked for a scoop. And God, see what great love the Father has lavished on you that you should be called children of God. And so you are. So you are. So many of you say, you don't know what I've done. God could never forgive me. He could never do that. I'm not good enough. This is the whole point of the cross. He is. He is. He's good enough. Because he loves you. And he spared no expense to bring you into a relationship with him. No expense. He 
He sees you as royalty. He doesn't see your mess. He sees you as royalty. And God does not make junk. He made you and wants to bestow a crown upon you. In the story of the prodigal son, when the prodigal son, prodigal just means excessive. In the story of the prodigal son, I think it's really a story about God's the prodigal God. He's excessive. When the prodigal son returns home, he comes home essentially saying this. He comes to the father. He says, if you remember the story, he says, I'm not worthy to be your son. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. And there's that word worth. But the father sees him. He's been waiting. He sees him from afar. He's like far off. He sees just that picture of that glimmer of his son coming over the horizon. That means he's been looking. He's been waiting. And he doesn't even hear. It's like he responds like he can't even hear this worthless dribble that's coming out of the son's mouth. He runs to him and he embraces him. And he takes his ring and he puts it on his finger. And he puts his clothes on him and he says, let's eat. My son was lost. And he's returned. Tim Keller says that we realize this when we understand the gospel, the good news. In the gospel, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. What the law was powerless to do, God did. God did. God did. You know, next week I want to bring us to this place in the story of looking at the kingdom of God. To look at what Christians, those who have the spirit of Christ, those who have the spirit of life in them, who have been adopted into God's family, what are we to be about now as his followers? And some time ago, I, I came across this quote from Abraham Kuyper. I mentioned him last week. He was the prime minister of the Netherlands at the turn of the 20th century. He, he says this, and this was inspiring for me to read over these past couple of weeks. He writes, while humanity may withdraw from God's authority, the Lord in his sovereign design places his hand on one part of the human race time and time again, incorporates it into his covenant, subjects one generation after another to his majesty within that covenant, and thereby brings nearer and nearer the rise of the kingdom of heaven over and against the kingdom of the world. Will you guys stand with me as I close in prayer? Father in heaven, would we uh, be open to crying out to you, Papa, Abba, Father. Lord, I don't, I don't know where my friends are at here, but, but you do. And Lord, you desire to have a real relationship with them that is, it's personal. And it all goes back to what Jesus did in the cross. 
we rest in your precious promises that you, O oh God, are faithful, that in the cross you lavish your love on you. It give us an exceeding abundance of your love. God, my prayer is that everyone here, you would turn and see and they would be on your right. God, would they, my unending prayers, that all who are standing here with me would be present in the fullness with new bodies inheriting a redone earth the way it was supposed to be just like it was in the beginning, that they'd be with you when you come in the fullness of your kingdom to judge the living and the dead. In Christ's name we pray.